Hello and welcome to the Trapping Today podcast. I am your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. And uh, thanks for listening in. The Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Kyle and Kellen have a great website, lots of trapping supplies and traps and gear and t-shirts and books and DVDs and lures and baits and urine and a whole pile of other things, anything you need on the trap line. And did you know that they have a rewards program? Um, I ordered the other day. I got a few TS-85s and a couple other things. And I think I saved about 15 or $20 off my order from points that I had built up uh, from previous orders. So I think it equates to around 5% off of everything. Uh, and you can use as many points uh, in at any time. Uh, when you place an order uh, that you have built up. So it's great. And uh, thank you, Cots Bros. And uh, guys, go check them out. Place an order. Thank them for supporting the podcast. So it is officially starting to look a little bit like spring here. It was like 60 degrees today. It was unbelievable. Uh, We lost, I swear, we must have lost a foot of snow in the last two days. Uh, There's still a pile of snow in the woods, but we're actually starting to see some bare ground in the fields um, it's a, a very pleasant surprise to start to see a little bit of uh, signs of spring popping up. And that's great. Uh, the spring beaver trappers are up and at it. The waters are just, the ice is just starting to open up around some of the roads here, road crossings and culverts. So uh, those guys are able to get some sets in. I think we're going to deal with a lot of uh, high fluctuations of uh, water levels at, at uh at different uh, road crossings that people are going to have a hard time with and, and it's just a matter of constantly moving traps uh, moving them in shallower as the water rises and then moving them back out deeper as the water drops so it's all about being adaptable and uh, there's some there's some real good beaver trappers up here that I have a lot of respect for and and they sure know how to get it done and I'm I'm going to um, make a couple of sets myself. Uh, I'm not going to hit it too hard, but but I'm really going to make an effort to go ride along with uh, with one or two of those guys uh, in the next week or so, and try to try to get a little bit more experience under my belt. Uh, boy, I, I, you can't uh, underestimate the uh, the value of of riding along with someone who's done it. Uh, very successfully for a long time. You you really learn a lot of intangible things that you can't you can't read on the internet or in a book. So um, it's beaver trapping season, and uh, guys are going to be stacking up some pretty good numbers, I'm sure. Prices are still low, but caster is high, and the beavers are really easy to catch up here this time of year, and they're very very abundant. Um, last week's episode, we had Ron Jones interview, and that was a really great interview. I know a lot of people enjoyed it, got some good feedback from that. Actually, even got a, a listener, Ron Jones, <laughs> who who, uh, who commented about Ron Jones, not the same Ron Jones, but uh, uh, one Ron Jones is, a, is now a fan of the other Ron Jones after listening to the podcast. I had a couple of people mention that they are going to go back and listen to that thing again uh, once or or twice or more uh, because there was so much information there that uh, that you you couldn't quite pick it up the first time around so so I I would recommend that just going back and re-listening I listened to that probably three times because I had to edit it and uh, go go through it and and record it get it ready after recording it 
and uh, I, I picked up on some things that I hadn't uh, picked up on when we did the interview. So that was great, and there's still more to come. We had a, a long phone conversation. I think we got a, at least a, another full episode to do out of that. I thought I'd take a quick break, though, because I just had a bunch of other things I wanted to talk about, and so I split that up, and we'll probably have that Ron Jones interview part two in uh, in next week's episode. Had a couple of nice iTunes reviews. Be sure, uh, if you don't mind, go go check out the uh, the iTunes site if you that's where you get the podcast. And uh, if you could leave a rating and or review, that'd be awesome. We get 67 ratings, and a couple of recent ones. Um, Brookie thirteen five five four says, "I love this podcast. It's a great podcast. Compasses all things trapping related. Jeremiah talks about the art of trapping, the lifestyle, the politics, and the old timer culture. I look forward to listening every week." Uh, and then we had one from MSP twelve oh six. Great information and insight. As a fellow main trapper, I appreciate Jeremiah sharing knowledge and enthusiasm. Every episode is time well spent. So thanks, guys. I'm glad you enjoy it. It's awesome. Awesome to hear that, um, and to the guys that that sent me some emails, uh, great to hear from you too. So the topic I want to talk about tonight is do fisher kill links, and this has been a very hot topic lately. Um, it was if you if you follow, I think most guys that listen to this uh, get online and and follow Trapper Man. It's amazing how many people actually read on. The, the posts on that site and never actually post themselves. There's a lot of lurkers. I was one for a very long time, and uh, I at some point I just decided I I would like to become a little bit of a part of the community there and just uh, offer my input on things. Primarily because there were certain topics where I just couldn't help myself. I just uh, you see people write things and it's like no, uh, I disagree. And uh, it's fun sometimes to mix it up a little bit and, you know, respectfully disagree with people on stuff. Um, but sometimes there's a topic that uh, that kind of just rises above normal back and forth and it's a really contentious thing. And uh, this whole Fisher and Lynx thing has, has kind of risen to that level a little bit. It all started, I believe, last winter. And uh, there's a guy, EB Surveyor on Trapper Man. He's uh, a guy that, that I trap uh, next to. Um, we kind of share similar trapping territory. Uh, he's a really good trapper. He uh, he's, spends a lot of time during the season getting out there in the woods and uh, a, a very good observer. And he follows along with a lot of the research and stuff that goes on. So, you know, we had heard for a long time uh, that about uh, the possibility of fishers killing lynx in northern Maine. And it was primarily as a result of some research that was being conducted. So for those of you that don't know, Canada lynx are listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act uh, in Maine. They're actually uh, now, that listing took place in the year 2000. And 2014, that protection was extended to basically all the lynx populations in the lower 48 states. So lynx are listed as threatened. And at the time in 2000, when they were listed, there was very little information on the population. Um, all we knew was there probably was a population. It was becoming more abundant as a result of changing forest practices and timber harvest, uh, more clear cuts, and lots more habitat for snowshoe hares, which resulted in 
uh, better prey base for lynx. So uh, you know I talked in the past about V.E. Lynch or Bobcat Lynch. He was trapping in this same general area uh, where the lynx are now and back in the 1930s and 40s. And he ca- he'd catch piles and piles of bobcats. Almost never caught a lynx. Um, it, oh, I don't I don't know as more than uh, a couple of lynx were were caught in Maine in a year around that time. So a lot has changed, and and uh, primarily due to to changing forests as a result of timber harvest. And the bobcats kind of moved south, and the lynx uh, moved south from Canada and uh, started to become more abundant. So right around the time of listing, the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife uh, Wildlife Research Biologists started a study to learn more about the lynx population. And what they did, they went into an area where EB and I both trap, and uh, as luck would have it, the study area is right in the core of some of the the general places uh, that we run trap lines. And they would they set out a bunch of cage traps, and they would live trap these lynx. They actually also used foothold traps. Um, I don't remember what percentage were caught in cage traps versus foothold traps, but they would capture these lynx and they'd fit them with radio collars, and then they'd follow them around and they'd follow them to determine like they they they'd ta- uh, collar adult females and determine. Uh, when they had their kits and uh, what the litter size was, how many of the young uh, survived, um, how you know successful they were in breeding. They looked at their size of their home range and how different home ranges interacted with each other. And they used all this information to kind of develop uh, different metrics to measure the population, uh, you know, birth rates, death rates, whether the population was expanding or, or uh, declining. And one of the big things that, you know, they use this to kind of generate a population estimate or estimate of population size. And, uh, of course, the idea is when the federal government lists a species, uh, whether it's a a species of wildlife, whether it's a fish, um, you know, states have a responsibility, the primary responsibility for managing these species within their state boundaries. Uh, when the feds list a species, it kind of uh, puts more pressure on the state to determine uh, what to do. And I think pretty much every state I've ever been in or been around uh, would rather have the federal government not be involved, and the people of the state would rather have the federal government not be involved in active management of those populations. So uh, the the states kind of take charge, generally, do these studies and determine uh, the status of the population and then and then help make uh, recommendations moving forward on what to do. So this really affected us as trappers in Maine. It, it was a, a huge challenge. It, it, there were, the state was forced to put into place a number of different regulations that restricted trapping in the state. And a lot of people stopped trapping as a result of these regulations. Uh, there was a just a whole rash of different regulation changes over the years, and uh, I, I won't even begin to talk about it. If you listen back to some early episodes of the podcast, I think uh, maybe six and seven, something around like way early on, I talked about the Canada Lynx issue quite extensively. But 
it makes it very difficult to effectively trap coyotes makes it in fox makes it difficult to effectively trap martin and fisher in a lot of cases uh, it, it's a huge challenge it's very frustrating and i don't think anybody benefits from it uh, except maybe animal rights activists so the goal is to uh, to learn more about this population, hopefully get it delisted. And the last we heard, the federal government uh, under the Trump administration has proposed to delist the Canada Lynx, and now it's just a matter of going through that process. And it's, a, uh, as you might imagine, a multi-year process. So hopefully uh, before too long, Lynx will be delisted and, and we can be back to business uh, in, in wildlife management. But throughout this process, you had this radio collar study, and uh, biologists were following the lynx around and learning a lot about them. And one of the observations that they kept seeing, and people like us that were out in the woods, uh, trappers, were talking to the biologists uh, here and there, and we ran into them, and, and uh, they were noticing that fishers appeared to be killing lynx. And it was something that wasn't common. Nobody has really documented it anywhere else to any extent and it was a little hard to believe but over time you know one time maybe it was a an anomaly uh, two times maybe a coincidence three four times they're starting to develop a pattern here and it it, it started to circulate around the trapping industry or tra around trappers in Maine like you know these fisher are killing lynx and we are not able to effectively trap fishers anymore because of these regulations that were aimed at protecting lynx. But indirectly, by trapping fewer fishers, we may actually be increasing predation on these lynx. So it's been bounced around for a while, and there were some reports that basically uh, did not go into detail, but just said we observed this number of lynx, uh, fishers killing lynx. Uh, EB put that up on Trapperman uh, a few months back, and it just exploded. Everybody uh, outside of Maine that is on there that uh, that knows anything about lynx or anything about fisher said this is absolute baloney. There is no way that a fisher could kill a lynx. Fishers are small, relatively small. Lynx are mean and fierce, and uh, it's it's BS. Everybody called BS and and. Basically, what they did and what they continue to do is uh, discredit the biologists involved in the study, say that they have some sort of conflict of interest. And granted, these are trappers. These are other trappers that are telling us these things, that, that the biologist had a conflict of interest or he, he, uh, he just wants to justify more work or future studies. And um, uh, they're obviously biased or the guy's an idiot. I heard that a couple of times. The guy's just an idiot, doesn't know what he's doing. I know the guy; he's not an idiot. But regardless, so uh, so anyway, it was it was kind of uh, it was kind of frustrating. But we just kind of it kind of went away, and and um, I I actually get a chance to talk with this biologist directly, and I said, listen, there's uh, you know a lot of talk on on the internet and chat boards that uh, that there's no way that Fisher could kill lynx, and and a lot of people don't believe your your observations and. And so, uh, you know, he reiterated he was extremely confident. He actually went into detail um, to me about um, all of the the things that he observed that proved that Fisher were killing lynx, and they were indeed healthy lynx, and these were active uh, kills. Um, 
it, it was direct predation and there was no question about it and and he said that it, there's absolutely no question about it uh and he said you know we're he, he may have mentioned something about a study coming uh, or a report they they were going to publish um to to sort of show other people in the scientific community uh what they had found and lo and behold uh this recently came out it is a note in the journal of wildlife management which is a peer-reviewed scientific journal basically all of the research in the wildlife profession uh, is reviewed by other scientists when someone wants to publish something it has to be something that's new uh, uh, something maybe unique and something that advances our knowledge about these wildlife populations and so the journal is something that's read by different professionals um, and and in this th this article is titled Fisher Predation on Canada Lynx in the Northeastern United States. Journal of Wildlife Management, the lead author on it is, is Scott McClellan, uh, and there are a number of others, uh, Jen Vashon, Jennifer Vashon, Erica Johnson, Shannon Crowley, and Adam Vashon, um, all with Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. And this, uh, the study is about nine pages long. It's hard to get Journal of Wildlife Management uh, um, online without paying for it but if you want to email me jrodwood at gmail.com if you're interested uh, I'll, I'll send you I'll share a copy of this with you so you can at least read it because I know we're not all scientists but sometimes we're we're interested in this stuff I, I know I am so I'm gonna I'm gonna read some of this to you and I just kind of want to go through the details because uh, number one there was a lot of this is new information uh, so so let's back up a minute um, and I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? I think most everybody would reply that, no, I, I guess I don't know everything. But but think about the number of people that act as if they know everything. Um, what happens when you act as if you know everything? What do you do with new information that's presented that is conflicting with the information that you believe you know um, in your mind. Uh, if, you, if you think you know everything and you're not willing to adapt or change or learn new things or admit that you might be wrong or admit that you don't know everything, how on earth are you going to learn to accept new ideas or, or advance or get better or improve your knowledge about something? I mean, I think that's a big part of being successful. I mean, it, it's not going to necessarily make you catch more animals, uh, but I think it, it really improves uh, us as trappers in, in this journey of, of learning as a trapper. If, uh, if this is just a constant learning experience and we're, we're growing and increasing our knowledge along the way, um, I think it's valuable. I think that's very valuable uh it's a very valuable trait and characteristic to have is somebody that is open-minded, willing to learn, and uh, looking forward to new things and new ideas. And, and, and just accepting the fact that we don't know everything about these populations. There's, there's so much to learn. And sometimes something can be going on that we, we didn't expect. We didn't know. Um, one of the things that, that I've thought about a lot is okay, let's say you're in a different part of the country, or let's say you're up in Alaska, or you're in Canada, um, the interplay between these two species is maybe different. 
the habitat may be different. The lynx population may be different. There's just so many factors that are unique to a specific area. And uh, to assume that because it's one way in your area, that it, it's not possible to be some different uh, thing going on in another area is, I think it's it's maybe being a little bit ignorant, um, and, or at least close-minded. And and I I know some people, uh, you know, don't are not open to new ideas or possibilities. But I think I think if you're in, confronted with something that is not in agreement with what you believe, and you start bashing the person that wrote it instead of actually looking at the science, it's not a healthy place to be. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's some guys that I really respect that, and, and I won't mention names, and I don't want to want to do that, because, you know, it's not about individuals. We all, you know, we all disagree on things certain times, but it made me think twice, like, like you know, really? Are you serious that, that you're calling the guy an idiot because it's something that you haven't seen before? So, anyway, we'll, we'll just move on into the study. And I, I thought it would be important... Because it's something that's so cool, and that's the reason that this was published in the journal Wildlife Management, because it's the first real solid documentation of Fisher preying on Canada lynx. And on the surface of it, it's something that just does not seem like it should happen. I, I mean, it just, it, I didn't, you know, I i had a hard time believing it at first myself. Um, but I, I'm going to read through the study with you, um, and I'm just going to, I kind of highlighted things, and we'll go through the high points. I think it'll be really interesting. Uh, for for a lot of people to hear, and uh, you know, I'll let you be the judge on on what you think about the science. If if uh, you think the guy is biased and and the researchers don't know what they're doing, or if you think, wow, this is pretty interesting. So, Fisher predation on Canada lynx in the northeastern United States. First, the abstract: the geographic range of Canada lynx extends south from Canada into the United States, where they are federally protected as a threatened species. Although inadequate protection of habitat on federal lands was the primary reason for listing, the status of lynx in the lower 48 states is not well understood. Thus, we initiated a telemetry study to assess the status of lynx population in northern Maine, USA. In this manuscript, we present findings on a source of mortality not previously documented. Between 1999 and 2011, we captured 187 lynx, equipped 85 with radio collars, and investigated mortalities when they occurred. Predation was the leading source of mortality and accounted for more than 18 of 65 mortalities, 14 of which were attributed to fishers. Although fisher predation did not appear to restrict population growth during the study, we recommend that lynx and fishers be monitored where the species coexist to better inform management decisions. So in the introduction, they go over you know the, the background of lynx being listed. They mention that lynx populations fluctuate in delayed synchrony with the abundance of their primary prey, which is snowshoe hare. And I think that's common throughout the range of lynx. Um, you know, you have these cycles of very abundant and and then uh, very low populations, and they just kind of follow the rabbits as as the rabbits become more abundant, lynx become more abundant. Um, and as that kind of turns the other direction, uh, the lynx start, there's a lot of starvation and uh, the lynx don't do as well. In the core and peripheral range, starvation and predation are the leading sources of natural mortality for lynx. So we're dealing with starvation and predation. Um, 
and they list the different predators that are known to prey on lynx. They include mountain lions, wolverines, gray wolves, coyotes, and other lynx. Intraspecific predation among lynx has been documented, and, uh, and that's basically lynx eating other lynx. In Maine, potential predators of lynx, so now we're talking about just specific to Maine, include coyotes, other lynx, black bears, bobcats, and fishers. And, and fishers have not been previously documented as predators of lynx. So this study basically um, was to broaden our, their understanding of southern lynx population, which is you know the southern end of the range, and determine if mortality was a limiting factor in Maine. Their hypothesis was that mortality sources would be similar to those documented in the Canadian boreal forest and that mortality rates would fluctuate with the snowshoe hare population. So this, the fisher predation thing, this is kind of just like a side uh, article that's showing something unique that they observed during the study. But the overall study had a, a lot broader objectives and uh, there's, there's a lot of work that they published elsewhere um, re related to that study. So they talk about just the general area of northern Maine, and then we go into the methods. So between 99 and 2011, we captured and equipped lynx with uh, radio collars or GPS collars, and basically they followed them around. Um, when we detected a mortality signal, we located the dead lynx, photographed the site, and collected data and lynx remains if available. We estimate the time of death as the midpoint between the last active signal and the first inactive signal. And then, how they determined the source of mortality. We sent lynx carcasses without signs of trauma to a path pathologist for a complete necropsy to determine the cause of death. Starvation cases were determined based on body and bone marrow condition. We performed necropsies of lynx carcasses with visible signs of trauma, in other words, where it looked like there had been predation taking place, to determine the cause and extent of the injury. We examined femur bone marrow when it was available and assigned a health rating, i.e. healthy, fair, or poor, uh, as described in the site a source there. We identified predation as the cause of death if, and, and this is this is critical because a lot of people that uh, haven't read the study don't, are like, oh, well, how'd they know, if, how'd they know that the lynx died of predation? How did they know that it was a fissure? So they're going to get into this. Um, but first of all, they knew it wasn't starvation because they looked at the, the body condition and the, the amount of bone marrow um, and, and determined that the animal was, if the animal was in good physical condition, then it wasn't starvation that caused that. Um, we identified predation as the cause of death if we found pre-mortem hemorrhaging associated with canine tooth punctures on lynx carcasses. And so this is important, and, and uh, people who do these studies um, understand that this is key. So when an animal attacks and bites into another animal and you have those puncture wounds, if the if the prey animal, the animal that's being preyed upon, is still alive, then the blood is still going to be pumping through its veins and it's going to be traveling and that's going to result in hemorrhaging where those bite marks are. If the animal's already dead and they bite into it to feed on it or whatever, uh, you're not going to have that hemorrhaging because there's no blood moving through the system. So that's a that's a cr very critical thing to, to you can use that to determine uh, whether the animal was alive or dead at the time it was attacked or eaten. 
we assigned oh this is interesting we assigned wider canine punctures that were part of a four puncture pattern as upper canines and narrower canine punctures as the lower canines and they went into this and I won't go into too much detail but we determined the species of predator by comparing these data with intercanine width measurements from previously measured predator skulls. So basically they went in and they measured, so they saw there was hemorrhaging there, the, animal, the lynx was alive when it was attacked, and then they measured the distance between the two canines, and then they compared that with the different possible predator species in the width of, widths of their canines to determine uh, which species it could have been. Uh, we determined the species of predator by comparing these data, blah, blah, blah. We identified the predator when intercanine width measurements were consistent with one species and did not overlap with other predator species. We also identified predation as the cause of death if we found predator tracks in the snow leading to a resting lynx or observed the tracks of a lynx being chased by a predator that ended at the kill site. A kill site was a disturbed area in the snow where tracks and scratch marks showed that a struggle between two animals had occurred, often with broken branches, blood, and tufts of lynx hair. In these cases, we identified the species of predator based on track characteristics, measurements, and trail pattern. We classified the species of predator as unknown if we were unable to obtain accurate measurements of the canine punctures and if tracks and other sign at the mortality site were obscured by changing weather conditions. For instance, if um, you get a fresh snowstorm or something, you can't see the tracks very well or maybe some snow melts. However, if some sign was evident, we classified the predator that killed the lynx as the species whose sign was present at the site. So that's the methods the results and they also uh, layered this over with the GIS base layer um, to look at different forest types to see if predation changed based on forest type which in fact it did as you'll see in a second in the results we captured 187 lynx equipped 85 with radio collars 41 females 44 males the mean weight of adult male and females were 11.3 kilograms for males and 9.0 kilograms for females. We documented the mortality of 65 lynx, including 61 collared lynx, one unmarked kitten of a collared female, and three ear-tagged lynx. We determined that 18 lynx were killed by predators. So there were 65 lynx that died during the study um, 18 of the 65 uh, were predation. So there's a number of other causes and, and sometimes you just don't know. So so there were 18 killed by predators. You think, well, all the rest probably starved. Well, not necessarily. Um, they determined 17 died of starvation. 12 died from human factors that primarily was vehicle collisions. And one, ironically from or strangely, from hyperthyroidism. Um, but there's there's still a remaining 17 and the, the remaining 17 uh, were uh, sources of mortality from undetermined causes so uh, they just didn't know there was no way of of determining definitively how those how those links died so of those 17 you know you could there could be a majority there could be a large number of those that were also predation uh, that just weren't documented um, or they just weren't able to find out. 
So of the 18, 18 were killed by predators. We determined that fishers had killed 14, nine females, five males, and likely killed two additional lynx. Uh, there were two females. Uh, we could not determine the species of predator for the remaining two lynx, uh, one male, one female. So they were, you know, there were some that, and, and, and I think Scott mentioned this to me, some he suspects were fisher kills, but he just wasn't confident enough to be able to say definitively that it was a fisher. So of the 14 killed definitively by fishers, 13 of the 14 were adults. Now here's where you say, well, there was an animal that was not a dominant lynx. Uh, it was in another lynx's home range. Uh, it was starving to death. It was, and that's what I thought. I thought these were comp. I thought either they were the kittens or they were uh, compromised health-wise, and they might have died anyway from starvation. Um, but that wasn't the case. Um, Thirteen of the fourteen killed by fishers were adults with established home ranges, and weights in bone marrow indicated that these lynx were healthy or in fair condition. The mean weight of the three adults recovered before predator could consume the carcass was similar to the mean weight of adult lynx captured in this study, um, and so on. The majority of mortality now, so so they determined that uh, certain percentages they know were killed by fishers, which already is way higher than anything that's ever been documented elsewhere. Now they're going to talk about the mortality sites, and let's think about okay, let's say this is. We know that these fishers are killing lynx, but what we don't necessarily know is how on earth is this happening? Um, how can a fisher, which is, um, you know, between 8 and 15 pounds, probably for the most part, how is that animal able to kill a lynx, which is maybe double its size um, in weight and a lot taller? Um, so this is where the really interesting part comes into play. The majority of mortalities occurred during winter when tracks and other sign allowed us to recreate the event. At 12 mortality sites, we observed where 10 lynx had been resting in a bed when killed by a fisher, or where lynx had been chased by a fisher and killed. So there were uh, 10 resting and 2 chased and killed. The only predator tracks at these sites were from fishers, and on seven occasions we observed where the fisher had dragged and then cached the lynx. Drag marks ranged from 1 meter to 201 meters. We often observed bright red drops of blood peppered along this drag mark. Caching sites included tree cavities, root masses, hollow logs, the space underneath downed trees, or dense conifer vegetation, and sometimes buried under the snowpack with no associated structure nearby. There were usually numerous fisher scats and a network of fisher trails to and from the carcass. We also observed a fisher in a cavity with the remains of a lynx carcass, and on two occasions we found dark brown guard hairs inside the mouth of the dead lynx. So obviously the lynx was fighting back um, and, uh, and uh, ended up biting on, on the fisher a little bit. Perhaps most noteworthy was the absence of other predator tracks and sign. So, uh, you know, one of the things I initially thought was, well, what if uh, there was uh, a coyote or or something, you know, a larger predator took down uh, the lynx and then a fisher came in and and, uh, and helped out or, or I don't know, uh, uh, came in a little bit after the kill and, and, uh, and took advantage of that, that dead lynx. Um, that didn't happen. It was only lynx tracks and only fisher tracks at, at these sites. 
During necropsy, we found premortem hemorrhaging and canine punctures on the head, neck, or throat of 9 of 18 links. On 6 links, 19 of 20 upper and lower inner canine width measurements fell within the range reported for fissures. It did not fall within the upper or lower bounds reported for coyotes or lynx. So in other words, it, this was a good, uh, an interesting thing because you want to make sure, you know, you see lynx tracks and fisher tracks. Well, maybe a lynx killed the other lynx and then a fisher came in after. Um, but, but by those tooth measurements and in, in the bite marks, they were able to determine that it, it, it was fishers. Thus confirming our field observations that a fisher had attacked and killed these lynx. So I, I think um, instead of calling the guy a hack and an idiot, um, it seems like it was a pretty thorough, uh, pretty thoroughly done study, and they made sure they covered their bases because I think they really knew that this was going to be doubted, and a lot of people were going to uh, weren't going to believe this study. So uh, that's the results of the study, and now um, I'm probably going to just read this whole discussion. It's pretty long. But what the discussion of, of one of these papers typically does is just goes over all of the surrounding information and kind of puts the results of the study within the context of other studies, within the context of different environmental variables and factors um, that could be uh, influencing what, what they saw in the study. So we'll go into the, the discussion. This is the first study to document predation of links by fishers. Subsequent to this study, researchers in Minnesota found possible evidence of fishers killing lynx on two separate occasions. Others have also reported, and, and by the way, I'm going to go through some of this, and um, there's citations throughout this to other studies, and I'm just going to skip them because it would be uh, a little awkward to read through it. So I'm just going to read it without the citations, but they're all in here. Others have also reported anecdotal observations of fishers killing lynx. Lynx have not been extensively studied at the edge of their geographic range where they coexist with fishers, which may explain why predation of fishers by fishers has not been previously documented. In addition, extensive changes to Maine's forest landscape during the last several decades likely influenced fisher abundance. I know that's based on my observations, that's absolutely true. Spatial use and interactions with lynx. Our study area was part of a 3.4 million hectare forest that was clear-cut in the 1980s to salvage red spruce and balsam fir affected by the spruce budworm epizootic. By the late 1990s, regenerating spruce and fir forest was a dominant component of the landscape, providing ideal habitat conditions for snowshoe hares. The abundance of snowshoe hares in northern Maine's regenerating conifer clear-cuts benefited lynx and possibly benefited fishers, which may have contributed to overlapping populations of both species in this region. Although fishers have been described as generalist predators, they have also been specifically associated with snowshoe hares and have increased in response to snowshoe hare abundance. Thus, snow depth, identified as a limiting factor for fishers uh, by Crone et al. 1995, may have been mitigated by the abundance of snowshoe hares. And actually, this is the first time I've seen this idea. Um, it's very, very interesting, and, and I'm kind of glad I read this study just for this, just for this little sentence, because. Um, I was taught, I went to school, University of Maine and wildlife uh, for undergraduate. And I was, we were always taught that uh, Martin, the Martin range is limited by fishers. So where Fisher and Martin overlap, Fisher typically win out in that battle. And uh, so, so where the Northern edge of the Fisher range is, you're kind of flirting with the Southern edge of the Martin range. And we see that in, in Maine and that bounces up and down depending on, 
on the weather, the climate, and uh, forest conditions, and so on. Well, at the same time, we always were taught that uh, fisher abundance was limited, or fisher distribution or range was limited by snow depth. So as you move further north in Maine, uh, you tend to get deeper snow pack accumulations throughout the winter, and that limits fisher. Thus, we have more martin and fewer fisher in the northern tip of the state, and all fisher, no martin in the southern tip of the state. Uh, so, so that's always kind of been the theory I've worked on as a trapper is, uh, okay, you've got this interplay between martin and fisher. Fisher are limited by snow depth. Martin are limited by fisher. But that doesn't explain why in this managed forest where I've trapped and for the last, I don't know, 25, 35 years, it's been extremely uh, different. The landscape has completely changed um, and, and, and associated with that is the increase in abundance of lynx. There's also tons of fisher there and they shouldn't be there because of this whole snow depth situation. Um, and historically, the, this was not part of a big part of the Fisher Range. If, if you look at uh, back in the day, the old-timer trappers, they, they hardly caught any Fisher uh, up in this area. However, this really interesting point here, the snow depth identified as a limiting factor may have been mitigated by the abundance of snowshoe hair. So what they're saying is the abundance of food, even though fisher are, are, don't do well in deep snow, and we often see that up where I trap, there, we almost, we very regularly catch our fisher in cedar bogs, where there's a lot of overhead cover, and the snow depth, you know, the snow doesn't penetrate through the thick layer of cedars as well, and so the snow depth is, is uh, quite a bit shallower. Um, but what they're saying is, because of this young regenerating conifer forest, uh, the snowshoe hair abundance, the food availability is so high that even though there's deep snow and fisher typically don't do well in deep snow, because the food is so abundant, they can they tend to do better. Um, so so the they don't they're less likely to starve trying to look for food. For instance, you know they they're eating porcupines um, typically, but uh, but that that's a really really interesting um, observation. And again, guys, another. Another point where do you know it all? Um, we're just we're just always grabbing bits and pieces and building building on things and trying to learn more. So, continuing on, temporal and spatial factors likely influence predation rates because most confirmed predation losses occurred in mature conifer forest, often and often during a snow event. So again, they layered these these predation events where Fisher killed lynx, and they noticed that. These are happening in mostly mature conifer forest, and they're mostly happening during a snowstorm. Conversely, few starvation losses followed this pattern. So where the lynx were starving was in a different area than when they were being preyed on by fishers. The preponderance of lynx that died from predation in mature conifer forest is noteworthy because this land cover type was fragmented and comprised only 12% of the study area. So only 12% of the area is mature conifers, and essentially 86% of the lynx kills by Fisher were in that 12% area. So that's pretty, pretty striking. Mature conifer was often associated with riparian zones that may have provided resting habitat for lynx because we know they're feeding in the younger forest. Um, they may be resting uh, 
in, in the older forest, especially during snowfall when hunting efficiency likely decreases. So they got a snowstorm coming through. Um, they move out of the feeding area because they're not going to, maybe not going to be as effective predators in the snowstorm. And they go into this mature forest resting area, and that's when Fisher, Fisher does his work. Because mature conifer forest also provides cover and resting sites for fishers, the use of this land cover type by lynx may increase encounter rates and their vulnerability to predation. So they just happen to be in the same place at the same time. In addition, fisher movement is restricted in the deep soft snow of midwinter. Because the majority of lynx killed by fishers occurred from January to March when the snow was the deepest, fishers may have sought mature conifer forest where snow depth was lower, further, again, increasing encounter rates. R.D. Weir, personal communication, also noted that it had been snowing when a fisher killed a lynx in British Columbia, Canada. Powell et al. 2003 observed that fishers surprised their prey in refuges, sometimes after being tracked in the snow, and were only captured if they were overtaken quickly. We theorize that snow provides fishers the added advantage of stealth, leading to a successful ambush of arresting lynx. This idea is further supported by a limited sign of struggle observed at mortality sites. Our observations of fisher killing lynx and feeding behavior were similar to Powell's, where fishers killed their prey with a bite to the back of the neck or head, cached prey remains in cavities, and often slept close to their prey. Winter severity in northern Maine also likely played a role in fisher predation of lynx. Winter is a period of food stress for most predators, especially in the northern latitudes where potential prey items are less accessible. Not only did 86% of fisher predations occur during winter, but fishers also killed more lynx after 2006, coinciding with lower hair densities in regenerating clearcuts on our study site. Other studies of fishers have demonstrated the importance of alternate prey when hair populations were low. Additionally, digestive and metabolic efficiencies are higher for larger prey, for instance deer carrion, um, porcupine, with a greater ratio of meat than found in smaller prey. In northern Maine, lynx may have been the most profitable food item for fishers, especially in winter when there were fewer foraging choices and when snowshoe hair densities were lower. It also seems plausible that fishers would have killed younger, transient lynx or lynx that were in poor body condition. That was my thought initially. However, all predation events in this study involved adult lynx with established home ranges, except for an eight-month-old kitten that was killed with its mother. In addition, the examination of femur bone marrow indicated that most lynx were healthy at the time that they were attacked by a fisher, even during the years of lower snowshoe hair abundance. It is unlikely that fishers killed lynx in Maine as a result of a specific learned behavior by one or two individuals, nor as a result of preying upon weaker individuals. Instead, the spatial and temporal distributions of lynx mortalities encompass the territories of multiple radio-collared fishers over a 12-year period. Uh, they're also collaring, tagging fishers uh, at the same time they're doing this other work, suggesting that fishers were opportunistic predators of lynx. In addition, during the first eight years of the study, when snowshoe hair densities were more than one hair per hectare, only female lynx were killed by the fishers, possibly because of their smaller body size. However, when hair densities declined to less than one hair per hectare, more lynx were killed, 64%, and both male and female lynx were killed, suggesting that fishers were opportunistically killing what they encountered. 
Although fishers are not well adapted as well adapted as lynx in environments with deep snow because of their shorter legs, they are better adapted to these conditions than other predators in the region that have a higher foot load. In other words, higher pressure per square inch uh, placed on their from their feet to the snow. Uh, for instance, coyotes. The absence of other known predators of lynx, wolverines, mountain lions, and wolves, we don't have them here, in northern Maine, along with favorable habitat conditions, may have created a unique opportunity for fishers. Although fishers are smaller and weigh less than lynx, uh, their average here was 4.6 kilograms uh, from 20 fishers that IFNW uh, measured, uh, they are aggressive predators, which under the right circumstances can give them an advantage over lynx. Uh, fishers, just like other mustelids, are beasts for their size. I can guarantee that. Despite the size difference, our data show that fishers are capable of selecting a more profitable prey item in winter. Uh, they call this a type 3 functional response, which I need to research a little more about because I don't remember that from wildlife class. But there was no information to demonstrate that fishers are competitively excluding lynx from habitats or are limiting the range or number of lynx in Maine. So that is the discussion. And you might say, well, great, that's really cool. Fisher killing lynx, it's interesting. But who cares? Why does this matter? Um, and if you're a trapper in northern Maine or if you're a trapper in any area, for that matter, this does matter. This is a big deal. Uh, because for me, it, to me, it matters a lot because it's the one of the few instances where, well, actually not one of the few instances, there's several instances where we can show with science um, that our trapping program, as it was prior to these restrictions, uh, was very well justified in helping manage this lynx population. What I'm trying to tell you is that our harvest of fishers in many ways was likely reducing the predation of fishers on lynx. And so by killing more fishers, trappers were doing lynx essentially a favor by reducing that potential for lynx to be preyed on and that, that source of mortality. Uh, these restrictions that were put in place to prevent the potential to kill a Canada lynx by trapping, because again, the federal government says you can't kill any. Um, if you kill any, it's a violation of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, Maine, uh, again, go back to the previous episodes of the podcast early on. Uh, Maine has an incidental take permit that says you can kill three by trapping in 15 years. Uh, if you kill more than three or you kill three, your trapping is shut down um, for that 15-year period. So it's a big problem. But what we've shown here is that potentially going back to the old methods of trapping, which we know are very much more effective at catching fishers. Um, and we, If you want more information about that, uh, either go back in the past episodes or maybe we can talk about it in a future episode, just let me know. Um, but those old methods without these links exclusion devices were much more effective. And as a result, we were harvesting more of these predators on links. So, Anyway, they, they, uh, they do list some management implications here at the end of the study. Um, they say recent trapping regulations for fishers have become more restrictive to minimize the incidental take of lynx. However, these restrictions have limited trapping effort and harvest of fishers. Therefore, predation may be having a greater effect on lynx population dynamics in Maine. Thus, it will be important to continue to monitor these trends and their impacts to inform future management decisions. 
So, you know, everybody that trashes the department and says that um, they they don't care about trappers. I mean, this is this is a good case where they've shown uh, the science is consistent with with our trapping programs. So uh, I think I think this is a good study for trappers, and it's a it's a well done, um, rigorous piece of scientific information of a really cool topic that we didn't know really was going on. It's interesting. So can you learn something new? Do you know everything? Um, or is it possible that we haven't? figured everything out in these populations and maybe there's always new things to to, to find out um, this is cool this this is cool and it'll build on on other information so uh, awesome uh, thanks for bearing with me on that study I hope that you found it as interesting as I did I know for for guys that are in Maine uh, particularly it's it's really interesting because it directly affects us but um, for people out there in other areas, maybe you have mustelid populations that uh, you think or or uh, people generally think that they know everything about, and maybe not. Uh, just like that Joe Panati on, on Trapper Man was uh, talking, he was talk, emailing me about fisher toilets. And Joe, if you're listening, that that's something that I haven't seen in, in any of the literature um, about these established toilets that fishers maintain. And it's something that I'm going to start looking for because uh, I think... That can really help us as trappers if we can find these toilets, uh, you know, similar kind of like an otter toilet. Uh, if you can find that and and where that animal is continually leaving sign, uh, boy, how, that can really make you a more effective trapper. So during this whole debate, do fisher kill lynx? Uh, it really got me thinking a little bit because I, you know, I've been working on the Walter Arnold project and going into uh, the, a bunch of the history of the old-timer trappers back in the 30s and 40s. And there was a very similar debate going on at the time. <laughs> and it was something that you almost couldn't make it up. How how interesting and how fascinating the directly direct parallels were to the Fisher-Killing Lynx debate and the bobcats killing deer debate and i think we're going to get into that in another episode uh do bobcats kill deer this was going on back in the 30s and 40s uh trappers from the east trappers from the west back and forth on the pages of fur fish and game magazine and other magazines at the time trappers in the east uh, bobcats kill deer we see it all the time we see evidence of it uh, they go into our deer yards in the wintertime in the deep snow, and uh, we see all these dead deer, um, the bobcats. We've seen places in, in the snow where bobcats have attacked deer. Uh, it's not just the sick and weak. Uh, we're seeing it happen. Guys out west, bobcats don't kill deer. There's no way. You guys are crazy. Bobcats too small to kill a deer. We've never seen it. We've never seen it happen. Well, did it maybe occur to anybody that conditions in the East and conditions of the West are very different? Uh, it occurred to Walter Arnold, and he wrote about it in an, an article that I think I'll bring up in a future episode. I published it on trappingtoday.com uh, for people to read, and, and it'll probably be included in the book uh, on Walter Arnold that I'm working on. So excited about that. Just another interesting topic. And hey, wouldn't trapping be boring if we didn't have these debates? I mean, come on. <laughs> This is some cool stuff. 
So anyway, uh, thank thank you so much for tuning in. I I appreciate it. We got lots to cover in future episodes. We'll try to get back to Ron Jones uh, next week. I get a really exciting interview with a, a trapper from Alaska that uh, I haven't done yet, and I'm I'm looking forward to it so much. Uh, I'm probably going to get nervous about it that I might screw it up now that I've that I've announced it. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. Also, uh, above the Arctic Circle, James A. Carroll. Uh, his his journal from uh, 1911 to 1922 trapping in Alaska I wanted to uh, go over that in a future episode do a little review of that and who knows we may talk a little spring beaver trapping we may talk a wide variety of things uh, be sure to email me jrodwood at gmail.com j-r-o-d-w-o-o-d at gmail.com maybe you want a copy of the study uh, that I could share with you maybe you want to suggest future topics going into the summer season we're in this pretty slow time and uh, we'll probably bounce around in all kinds of different um, different topics I, I I can't help myself there are just so many ideas I, I initially when I started the podcast I thought that I was going to run out of ideas pretty quick and I just find more and more all the time so uh, I, I absolutely love it and and I, I do want to make sure it's useful to you guys as well so uh, be sure to let me know if you have anything that you would like me to cover uh, specifically or, or even something in general, and we'll try to work it in. But until next time, thank you. Keep on talking trapping. Keep on thinking trapping. If you still got a season, get out there and trap. If not, do some scouting. Maybe make a few test mock sets out there. Uh, maybe uh, check out some particular areas that you want to trap next year. Uh, just stay in the trapping game. It's it's such a such an awesome thing. Um, Take care and we will catch you on the next episode.